Uh, today, if you haven't been paying attention in the last 15 minutes or so, I've, uh, I've mentioned this a few times already, but of course we are continuing uh, in the book of Exodus today, and we are uh, going through the plagues of judgment that God poured out upon Pharaoh and upon his kingdom there in Egypt. Um, and of course these plagues are not arbitrary, as we discussed last week. They are the acts of God's judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Uh, and those plagues are a response to Pharaoh's oppression of God's possession, which is his people uh, who are enslaved uh, there in Egypt. And not only enslaved, but Pharaoh's trying to wipe them out, right? He, he attempted genocide on those people. Uh, and, and Pharaoh repeatedly refuses. Uh, every time Moses comes before him as God's mouthpiece, he comp- repeatedly refuses uh, to let God's people go, even though he has multiple opportunities to do so. And so God uh, pours out judgment on Pharaoh and on his kingdom. Now, a quick reminder of what has brought us here today, if you uh, are are new to vintage or you're not here often or if you just haven't been paying attention, uh, we are going through the book of Exodus. uh, And it's probably, even if you haven't been here, you probably know uh, a little bit about the story of Exodus. Maybe you've seen Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments or my favorite, The Prince of Egypt, uh, the the cartoon movie, which I really have to separate in my mind as we're going through Exodus. That's, that's not actually infallible truth presented in the movie, but it's really good, though. It's on Netflix. Check it out. Uh, but God is, is revealing himself to Egypt in order to set his people free. And he uh, is using Moses as his instrument there uh, to, before Pharaoh. And so God commands Moses to go before Pharaoh and demand that uh, he let his people go. And Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord? You know, I don't, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he's just being sarcastic because he's arrogant. And we, we see that he is arrogant. So God is going to show him. He says that by great acts of judgment, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And we see that that's actually happening. God's revealing himself. And some are coming to respond to God's revelation of himself. So God proceeds to pour out his judgment in the form of plagues. And we've looked at four of those so far. Two weeks ago, we looked at God uh, through Moses turning the Nile River, which was the source of, really, the source of life uh, for the Egyptians. Uh, He turned that to blood, and all the fish died there in the river. Then last week, we looked at how God used three different pests to pour out his judgment. He used frogs, then gnats, and then flies. And these infestations of of these creatures uh, were acts of God's judgment. And then remember, uh, as we are slowly, uh, the, the, the people are slowly coming to realize who God is as a result of his judgment being poured out here. In fact, last week we saw after the plague of gnats, Pharaoh's magicians, who up until this point had tried to imitate uh, the, the plagues, which was really not a productive thing to do because there were inf- you know, infestations everywhere, uh, they gave up at, at the gnats, right? They said, this, this is the finger of God. They said, we, you know, we can't replicate this anymore. And so the magicians are getting the point. This is, this is the Lord. This is Yahweh, the one true God. And Pharaoh himself is even coming to some level of realization uh, that this is God. In fact, he acknowledges to Moses uh, that the plagues are from God whenever he asks for them to stop. However, we also quickly dis- uh, begin to see what becomes a very familiar pattern, and we'll see it over and over again through this plague narrative, which is Pharaoh uh, seeming to concede, at least to some extent, as a result of most of the plagues, and then God uh, pulling back the act of judgment, the plague at hand, and then Pharaoh, uh, he, he, he backs off of his promise to, to do whatever he said he was going to do. He hardens his heart, and he goes back on his word. 
And so far, we've looked again at four plagues, and four times we have seen that Pharaoh has ultimately hardened his heart, and he has refused to let God's people go. So today, we're going to jump right in uh, to Exodus again. In chapter 9, we're going to look at plagues 5, 6, and 7 today which are the plagues of uh, dead livestock, or the, the death of livestock, boils on, on the skin of the people, and then a furious hailstorm that we'll discuss. And we will, again, this week be reading a pretty long passage of Scripture. I'm not going to skip over that again because I want to challenge you to remember that the reading of the Scripture is, again, the only infallible part of our worship gathering. Okay, so even if we mess up everything else, that part we're going to get right. And so we're going to read the scripture and revere it uh, together as we dwell on it today. So let me challenge you again to remain diligent as we read these 35 verses of Exodus chapter 9, remembering that, again, it alone is the infallible and authoritative word of God. So if you have a copy of God's word, go to Exodus chapter 9. The words will be on the screen behind me in the English Standard Version. And let's read the word of the Lord together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, So that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. And the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people go. Sixth plague. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and lose it in all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it into the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. As the Lord had spoken to Moses. Seventh plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as, has, as never has been, has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field and to save shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not, that is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses 
But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had, ne- such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the ember were not struck down, for they are laden coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased. And the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God of justice. God, who will by no means clear the guilty. Lord, who who does not let evil go unpunished. God, but thank you that you are a God of infinite matchless grace. God, who keeps your people safe from harm. God, today as we look at these great acts of judgment that you poured out on Egypt, Lord, would you help us to see that, uh, Lord, we we are worthy of the same judgment. God, for we are all hard in our hearts, rebellious in our natures, blind in our hearts, God, but you are gracious God, you made a way to protect us, Lord, through the Goshen of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see the salvation that is offered through him alone today. God, may you magnify your truth in our hearts, Lord, that we may come to stand in awe of who you are, the power that you wield over your creation, but God, the power that you wield over hard hearts to soften them to your truth, to show them uh, the way of repentance and life abundant. God, reveal yourself to us as we dwell on your word together today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, last week we looked at plagues 2, 3, and 4. The plagues of frogs, gnats, and flies. And we called those the finger of God's judgment. Because that's what the magicians said after the gnats when they acknowledged, oh, we can't do this anymore, and they gave up. They said, this is the finger of God. Um, But as I mentioned, we see this sort of uh, evolving severity and intensity of God's judgment throughout the plagues, right? And I said that what starts as the finger of God's judgment becomes then sort of the fist of God's judgment that becomes the roundhouse kick to the face of God's judgment eventually. 
And so today I've entitled the message, The Hand of God's Judgment, which again uh, comes from Scripture, uh, verse 3, which is what it says, The hand of the Lord would come against them. Like we did last week, before we uh, examine each of these three plagues, I want to discuss another common thread that runs underneath this whole narrative, uh, which is worth discussing, I think, because it comes up repeatedly and it's kind of difficult to deal with. It's kind of complicated to understand. And I I don't think I'm going to be able to give you a full understanding uh, of this this theme today, but I want to touch on it because Scripture does repeatedly. Um, and what I'm referring to is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So the first thing I want to look at today is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now you might want to argue with me because Scripture also says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And that's what I want to talk about today. Who is responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart in Exodus? Is God responsible for it or is Pharaoh responsible for his hardness of heart? Well, let me look, uh, let's look together at several of the passages that refer to who does the hardening, and then we'll discuss it. Exodus 4.21 says, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. And this is God speaking. He says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. This is the first occurrence. God says, I will harden his heart. Chapter 7, verse 3, But I, again God speaking, will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Exodus 8, 15 says that when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, and this is dealing with the plague of frogs, he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 8.32s, which is after the flies were removed, says that Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. He did not let the people go. 9.12, which is after the plague of boils that we'll look at today. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then finally, 9.34, we'll look at again today. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So, so which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his heart, or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the answer is yes to both questions, okay? Um, it's kind of tough to think about, and I want to kind of give you some perspective on this uh, today. And I think when we step back and try to put uh, these seemingly conflicting passages in their uh, in, into perspective, it's not as hard to understand. Now, again, the first time we see the idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, it's God telling Moses that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So we can have no doubt that this is going to be what happens in the narrative. And, of course, we've read this story before probably, so we know that is indeed uh, what happens. Yeah, spoiler alert. God said it would happen, and that's what happens, which is, you know, kind of the the way things work out. When God speaks, that's what's going to happen. So in the grand sort of narrative sense, God is sovereign over all the events of Exodus, and therefore, really all the events of human history. And so, in the grand narrative sense, God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. However, we also see that Pharaoh is presented with a choice. Each time God reveals himself to Pharaoh... Um, through the plagues or otherwise earlier in Exodus, Pharaoh is given a chance to repent, to surrender, and to obey. The same choice that we are given, right? But each time we see that Pharaoh chooses of his own volition to harden his heart and to remain steadfast in his defiance to surrender to the one true God. 
So how are we to understand uh, this, this sort of conflicting idea? Well, one of the best things we can do when we're trying to understand Scripture is to use Scripture. Um, and Paul talks about this very thing in the book of Romans. I want to read to you a passage where, where he does that in Romans 9. Paul says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be, be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? See, Paul understood this conundrum, right? And so the way uh, I try to think of this might be helpful for you. It might not, but I want to give it to you this morning. Uh, and it's a, sort of a method of understanding how both God and Pharaoh can be responsible for Pharaoh's hardened heart. Now first, again, we talked about God as the sovereign creator, right? He is the great author of human history. He wrote the whole book of human history, right? And so he is the sovereign author of the whole thing from beginning to end. And so I sort of think of God as the sovereign creator, the great author, holding the book of human history like a book in his hands, right? And so God is not therefore confined to the pages of the book that he has written because he wrote it. He eternally exists both outside the time and space constraints of the pages of that book, but he also exists within the pages of that book because he interacts with the characters within the book that he has written. Now, Pharaoh, on the other hand, and, and you and I, for that matter, exist only as characters within that book, the narrative of human history. We experience the events of human history chronologically, right? We, we are bound by the space and time that we uh, exist within. And so... Uh, God holds this book in his hands, and because we cannot know the full sovereign story that the great author has already written, uh, then our choices are both real and they are significant. And so Pharaoh was then presented with a real choice of whether he would surrender to God's revelation of himself, he could repent and believe and obey, or not. And Pharaoh chose to disobey. He chose to remain in his rebellion to God. And based on the authority of God's pre-revelation, which he had already laid out to Moses, we know this was actually God's plan in this story all along. So again, that may not be super helpful for you, but it should give you something to talk about in your missional communities uh, this week. It might be a bit of an oversimplification of this sort of paradox of how a sovereign God gives human beings legitimate choice. However, hopefully it does give some explanation of how Pharaoh is indeed morally accountable for his rebellion. And so are we. We are morally accountable for our rebellion. Ultimately, we can take comfort in realizing that our finite understanding does not compare to the infinite God and we can find solace in the words of God in Isaiah where he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now further, we see that just like Pharaoh, 
We are without excuse in remaining in our hardness of heart. Because God has revealed himself to us. Maybe not in the exact same way uh, that he revealed himself to Pharaoh, but he has revealed himself to us in the things that he has created. Romans 1 says that for what can be known about God is plain to them, and that's all of us, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they and we are without excuse. See, Pharaoh was without excuse, and you, or I, you and I are without excuse. God has revealed himself to us, and we are morally accountable to whether or not we respond to that revelation. The Bible also places all believers in that same hard-hearted category with Pharaoh. Ephesians 4 says that unbelievers are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We also see, based on the testimony of Scripture, God is the only one who can intervene and soften hardened hearts. The Apostle Paul says that you must have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. See, we must realize that we, we can remain in our hardness of heart or God will intervene and soften our hearts to understand his truth by his Spirit. He can open the blind eyes of our hearts so that we are able to understand the truth that he is God and we can then surrender to his revelation of himself, of himself and give our lives to him. The choice that Pharaoh had is the same choice that each one of us has. And the sovereign God can soften even the hardest of hearts and draw them to repentance and saving faith in him as the great deliverer. So again, that should give you a little bit to talk about in your missional communities this week. But now let's jump into these three plagues and, and see how in chapter 9, God demonstrates his power over his creation. That's our second point today. Last week we discussed how the plagues of frogs and gnats and flies show God's power over the false gods of the Egyptians. And we're going to do that again today as well. Because each of the plagues has one or more corresponding Egyptian gods that it was designed to humiliate and make a mockery of. However, the scope of the plagues is more significant than God just demonstrating his power over the false Egyptian gods. Because they show that not only does God control the water and the hopping and swarming and buzzing creatures, he's also the God over everything else. God demonstrates his power over creation and his ability to wield his creation and the revelation of himself through these plagues. And so the first one that we're going to look at today, plague number five, is the death of livestock. Verse three, to recap, says, The hand of the Lord will fall with a very serious plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Then verse six says, All the livestock of the Egyptians died. Now there are several reasons that God chose to pour out his judgment in this way on, on Egypt and on Pharaoh. Now, first of all, again, we want to discuss the correlation between the plagues and the false Egyptian gods. And many Egyptians worshipped the bull. In fact, they referred to him as, quote, the great inseminator. Uh, he was a fertility figure, a sign of potency and vitality. Now, there are several Egyptian gods who are depicted as bulls, but the most prominent was Apis, whom priests worshipped in Memphis, to be Memphis, Egypt. 
uh, by keeping a live bull that they believed to be the incarnation of Apis. In a, and they kept that, that bull in a sacred enclosure. Also, the queen of the gods, Isis, if you're up on your Egyptian mythology, was also uh, often depicted with cow's horns. Also, the goddess uh, Hathor was supposed to protect Pharaoh. And Hathor was, uh, oddly enough, even once depicted as nursing at, uh, as a cow nursing at Pharaoh's breast. However, that's supposed to work in the sort of Egyptian mythology of things. Now, clearly, this plague was designed to strike at a sacred symbol of Egyptian worship. And if you think this is sort of a, uh, you know, weird anecdotal connection, uh, think ahead with me, if you know this narrative, to what happened when, uh, after God's people get out of Egypt, they're going to get out, by the way, if you haven't read ahead, uh, and God reveals himself uh, on Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, right, and he, he encounters God there, God gives him the law. Moses comes back down. And what are the Israelites doing? They have made for themselves a graven image. Do you remember what the graven image is? A golden calf, right? The, the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites are just reverting to what they knew of the pagan religion of the land that they came from. So we see that this plague, like all of them, is designed to make a mockery and to humiliate the false gods of Egypt. But also, the plagues wreaked havoc upon Egypt's agricultural economy. Now, first we saw with the Nile being turned to blood, their source of water was ruined. Then uh, the plague of flies uh, ruined the land. And now, God takes aim at the animals. I mean, Egypt was a farmer's hell during the plagues. I want to take a short aside, though, before we continue with this plague, to discuss uh, what is often a common criticism of uh, Exodus 9. From, from those who are skeptical of the truth of the Bible. Verse six, point, verse 6 points out that all the livestock of the Egyptians died and not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Now, if you were paying attention as we read uh, chapter 9 a minute ago, you notice that in the hail plague later on, the Egyptians are told to gather in their livestock so that they wouldn't die in the hail. So there seems to be a contradiction here. It says that all the livestock died, and then later on they're, said, they're told to gather the livestock in here. Now, there's two very simple and reasonable explanations for what might be perceived as a contradiction here. The first is when verse, verse 6 says all the livestock, it's using a, a collective adjective. It's simply, simply meaning all kinds of livestock. Not every single individual animal died. That's, again, that's one explanation. Now, you and I might use uh, the word all in a very similar way. Like if you asked me what sort of pizza I like, I might respond, I like all the pizza, right? This doesn't mean that I like every individual pizza, although that's probably also true, but that I like all the types of pizza because I like pizza. Now, the second explanation is that the plague only affected the livestock that were in the fields because the verse clearly says that, that the uh, plague would come upon the livestock in the fields, not the ones who are in the barns. And this makes sense, again, because the Scripture says livestock that are in the field, but also because uh, people, the historians who study ancient Egypt know that farmers would usually divide their livestock between field and stable uh, when the floodwaters receded. And so, Either explanation is plausible, and there's really not an, uh, a, a real contradiction here. In fact, anytime you encounter what 
uh, you either perceive to be a contradiction or what a skeptic brings to your attention as a contradiction in Scripture, in reality, it's probably not, right? There's usually a very simple and reasonable uh, explanation for it. Sometimes we just have to look into it a little bit to understand exactly what that supposed contradiction is referring to. All right, so enough of that. Let's get back to the plague of the death of livestock. Verse 3 calls this a very severe plague. And the word for very severe is the same word that, that the original Hebrew uses to describe Pharaoh's hard heart. So we can see here that the plague was as hard as Pharaoh's heart was. Indeed, uh, you know, we might say that the previous plagues were, were, while they were bad, they were really just a nuisance, right? We talked about the finger of God's judgment. But the death of livestock takes it up a notch, right? It's more significant. It not only killed off their cows, but also it says horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, and goats. This took away their source of milk, uh, source of food and clothing and labor and transportation. This is also the first plague that directly results in death, right? I mean, we know that the plague of frogs, all the frogs died at the end, but this plague actually causes death. And it's also the plague, the first plague that destroys Pharaoh's private property. As we discussed last week, God refuses to sit idly by while his possession, his children, are being oppressed. Pharaoh took God's people, and now God is taking what belonged to Pharaoh. Next, we see God's demonstration of power over the Egyptians when he takes aim at their health by giving them boils on their skin. Pharaoh if you haven't caught on, was an absolute fool. And not just like, I'm not just calling him that. He's a fool in the proverb sense of the word fool. Proverbs 27, 22 says, Crush a fool in the mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Pharaoh was being crushed and still he remained obstinate. You know what they say the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? Well, five times up to this point, Pharaoh was warned. Five times God has poured out his judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And five times, Pharaoh starts thinking, ah, maybe I'm ready to give in. God relents. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And he's going to keep this stupid, foolish pattern up. So what should he expect to happen now? Well, God, again, pours out his judgment by striking at their health with boils. Now, there's varied speculation about what exact disease the Egyptians were afflicted with in this plague, but the most common is believed to be skin anthrax, which uh, here's the description that one scholar described. She said it takes the form uh, first of a big swelling of the affected part of the skin. After two to three days, there appears a small bluish-red pustule with a central depression in the middle of the swelling. This depression dries up. New boils shoot up. The tissue then swells into blains as if burnt, and then finally peels off. I mean, this is, this is nasty stuff, so hopefully I didn't ruin your lunch. After five plagues that were maybe an annoyance, but a significant one, God is finally showing he has power over the human mortal body. Things are getting personal. Now, another quick aside, we see a similar sort of uh, contradiction perhaps in this plague. Verse 11 says that the boils came upon all the Egyptians. And the word all here uh, presents the same perceived problem that was used referring to the livestock. But again, you can see here that it's clearly referring, or it's clearly being used as a collective term. Now, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't seem that Pharaoh actually got 
the boils that are poured out in this plague because in the next plague, God says, now I'm going to pour out my judgment on you yourself, implying that he hasn't done so previously. So all here, again, is a collective. It's used like we might say a few months ago, all the people of vintage got the flu. Well, maybe not every single one of you did, but, but pretty much, right? It's not inaccurate to describe it that way. It was sort of a, the plague of influenza here at vintage. So you, you know what the scripture means when it says all the Egyptians. Now, because this plague affected the Egyptians' health, uh, it is, uh, too, related to many of their false gods, including Amon Re, their creator god, who, quote, dissolves evils and dispels ailments. We have uh, Thoth, the god of the healing arts. We have Imhotep, the god of medicine. And Sekhmet, the god who uh, was supposedly uh, the creator and the ender of ac- epidemics. But even more than those specific correlations, we see that this plague was an attack on all other gods because it showed that their gods couldn't heal them. Furthermore, the way God told Moses to execute this plague was also designed to humiliate the false gods of the Egyptians. Moses is told to take ashes from the kiln to throw them into the air and they would be dispersed and turn into boils on the, skins of the, on the skin of the Egyptians. Now this was, uh, this scattering of the ashes was a common practice on the, in the, with the priest of ancient Egypt as they uh, scattered their sacrificial offerings to the wind. And while this might be a bit uh, speculative, it's probable that the kiln Moses was told to get those ashes from would have been a kiln used to make bricks. The same kind of bricks that God's people were being oppressed in slavery to make. And remember, Moses is commanded to do this in the sight of Pharaoh, right? Not all the plagues have that specific uh, command, but Ma- Moses is told to, to grab the ashes in the sight of Pharaoh and to toss them into the wind. So it wouldn't have been lost on Pharaoh, the irony of this judgment here, because this was a very specific symbol of God's divine retribution for the oppression of his people. God took what was Pharaoh's curse on God's people, He forced them to to work as slaves. And God turned that curse back around as a curse on Pharaoh himself and his people. And if you look at Pharaoh's magicians, last week we saw, oh, they they gave up. This is the finger of God. They're done now, right? They they already gave up on their imitation, but now they're at their wit's end. The Bible says they couldn't even stand before Moses. And because they were infected with this disease of boils, They also couldn't carry out their religious duties because they were seen as um, impure. In fact, this is the last in this narrative, actually in the whole book of Exodus, that we're going to see of the magicians because they have been ruined by this act of God's judgment. You would think that this would be a sufficient enough reminder to Pharaoh that he is not divine as he saw himself to be, that he was a mere mortal. Ashes to ashes. He should have realized that The God who has power over our mortal bodies is the same God who has the power to give and take life from our mortal bodies. But alas, we see this horrible pattern that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and so then God's judgment grows even more severe. The last plague we'll look at today is the plague of hail. And I don't know if I'm supposed to rhyme that with hell or say it like a country bumpkin, hail. So uh, just bear with me. I'm going to go somewhere in the middle. God gives a very detailed and patient warning before he pours out this plague of hail. But yet, 
Some of the Egyptians realized the folly of Pharaoh. They realized that their pagan religion was futile, and they took God at his word. Verse 20 says, Before God poured out this plague, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. See, God was making himself known to the Egyptians, and some of the Egyptians responded to God's revelation of himself. But, oh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, on the other hand, somehow remains obstinate. Now, he does give the appearance of repentance. He says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good start to a sinner's prayer, right? But once again, the only motivation for Pharaoh's confession is to remove the consequence of his sin, not to turn away from his sin. Upon closer examination of his words, we can see Pharaoh's not confessing that he is a sinner, only that he has sinned this time. Nor does he confess any of his numerous past sins. And remember, this is Holocaust-level stuff. He attempted genocide on God's people. Once again, we see Pharaoh is trying to negotiate the terms of his surrender. He doesn't have a changed heart. He just wants to be set free from the consequences of his sin. May we not be like Pharaoh. May we not see God as simply our deliverer, but not our Lord. You would think that in the aftermath of this plague, which is, which is pretty bad, that when Pharaoh sees once again that Goshen, the part of Egypt where God's people lived, was spared, that he would, he would be softened, right? That he would come to repentance and faith in the one true God. Now we know that he, he doesn't do that. But I want to end with one final and beautiful truth that we can see from what happens, or more accurately, what doesn't happen in the land of Goshen. And that's that God sets his people apart and he shields them from judgment. It's our final point today. Now, we, we haven't really discussed this yet. We've kind of glossed over it. But in several of the plagues, the, play, uh, the, the scripture specifically mentions that God's people are shielded from God's judgment in the land of Goshen. Now, presumably, this is true with all of the plagues, but it's uh, specifically mentioned in some of the plagues, including the flies, and then with the livestock, and now we see it with this great hailstorm. Now, last week, I laid a foundation of God's purpose behind all of these plagues, which is that God pours out his judgment against evil. However, one thing we kind of skipped over, which is reiterated here in the plague of hail, is this picture we have of God simultaneously pouring out his wrath while shielding his people from that wrath. And we have here in Goshen a beautiful picture of the gospel. See, the purpose of the plagues is twofold. Yes, God is pouring out his judgment through the plagues, but God is also saving his people through the plagues, demonstrating both his just wrath, but also his great mercy. The safe haven of the land of Goshen is a reminder of God showing mercy even while he is pouring out his judgment. This is a theme we see all throughout Scripture. Just as God covered Adam and Eve with the skins of animals in the garden after they sinned, just as God closed Noah and his family up in the ark before he rained down his judgment on the evil earth, and just as God poured out his judgment on his beloved son so that we might be covered by his blood and kept safe from his wrath, for us the cross is our Goshen. 
in the end, we will either be counted as Pharaoh was among the hard-hearted who refused to repent, who refused to believe that God is our deliverer, despite the abundant and overwhelming evidence that he is and his numerous patient warnings to us, And if we remain like Pharaoh in our hard-hearted obstinance, our defiance to God's revelation of himself, we, like Pharaoh, will face the judgment of a God who is holy and will not stand for evil. Or, Or we will be counted among God's people who, knowing that he is accomplishing a great plan of deliverance for us and trusting in his plan to deliver We will be covered by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross to atone for our sins and to cover us from his judgment. We will be delivered from our slavery to sin and we are then bound for his eternal promised kingdom where he reigns supreme forever and ever. Today, if you never have, or even if you already have, may we find anew that our Goshen is in Christ, the one who died to set us free. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the hope that alone comes from the atonement of your son on the cross and his victory over death three days later. God, we know that you are just in pouring out your judgment against evil. God, if we refuse to repent, you will do that upon us, God, because uh, because you are holy. Lord, you won't stand for it. God, but your great love, oh, your great love. Lord, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God, may we, may we trust in him. Or may we trust that you will keep us safe from harm if we have trusted in Jesus. Lord, but not only do you shield us from your wrath, Lord, you empower us with your spirit and give us new life to walk in that begins now. God, would you help us to understand Uh, that, That we have a choice to make, Lord. And though you are sovereign and your ways are higher than our ways, God, that you, by the power of your spirit, have the power to to soften hardened hearts and to open blind eyes to see. God, help us to be softened to your truth today. God, to see your plan as good. Lord, and to be counted among your people. God, as we have the opportunity to celebrate the great covering of the blood of Christ today by partaking of this holy meal, God, would you cause it to to make us remember his sacrifice that has set us free from sin and death and given us new life. God, and if we've trusted in this message of deliverance, God, would you help us to shout it? Lord, to realize that it is the words of life to a world who is blind and hard and and facing your judgment, Lord, but who can know your mercy and your grace and your love. God, allow us to be vessels of that grace. God, to be so filled to the brim with it, when we walk around, we spill it everywhere we go. God, may your will be done among us today. In Jesus' name, amen.